Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Jen. March. Jen March. <laughs> yes, and uh, Joe Phillipson. Hello. Um, on today's show, we're going to be talking about our two guests' uh, experience working as uh, freelance photographers and um, some of what they've encountered in the field and what that work is like. Um, I just want to start off the show by asking the two of you, what, um, what what's your background? What's your experience working in this field? Um, Jen, if you want to start, you can. Sure. I went to Rochester Institute of Technology uh, for photojournalism. I graduated in 2017. So since then, I've been a freelancer 100% through and through. And I've never really had a a great year, unfortunately, uh, income wise. Um, I think that's largely due to the fact that I'm just not good at marketing myself. But I, I guess it, it, when it comes to experience as a photographer, I mean, I, I do love being a photographer. That's um, how I communicate with the outside world. My experience is uh, largely in news photography and uh, sports photography. Uh, so naturally, when the pandemic hit, I too was, well, I haven't, sh- I barely shot sports recently. <laughs> But um, now I'm focusing a lot less on how to make money because I know <laughs> that it's not going to be easy. And instead, I'm just kind of doing what I want to do and just going from there, trying to find ways to turn them into stories and and uh, pitch them to clients. And uh, Joe? Yeah, I got started with photography as just like kind of something that was something that I enjoyed and uh really kind of uh consumed my life and i started uh doing weddings and portraits just trying to like see what would happen with that and i quickly realized that i wanted to go beyond that and so i too also enrolled in rit in rochester and i moved to rochester new york and studied out there for a little bit and then i took a a couple internships in new york city and uh, I, I started freelancing when I was in school, which I don't know how, I don't know how often that is. And I kind of at times felt like I was like, you know, like over my head, <laughs> but uh, I just was like, well, fake it till you make it. So, um, but uh, when I got out of school and after I did a couple internships, I went into, um, I worked for a university for a little bit and I kind of did the uh, like more like PR side of photography all while at the same time on my own doing my own documentary work and doing my own photo journalism work. And then, you know, taking the occasional freelance gig. And then, um, maybe like four years ago, I went 100% freelance and that's where I've been since. And it has been a rough time. Almost everywhere that I wanted to work or thought I could graduate school and get a job at, like seemed to have closed up or wasn't hiring anyone or was liquidating their staff. And 
making them freelancers and it kind of um it kind of meant that like me fresh out of school was now competing with like people that had like 30 40 years experience and all like the networking and connections and they already knew everyone so it's it's been a little uh it's been a little tough uh, on that front so i've like found ways to kind of diversify my income a little bit with photography uh like selling art or you know doing more landscape work and trying to find ways to put them on products and sell the products and those those kind of things you know yeah um i'm i'm struck because i i came out of college and i i majored in journalism myself and i wanted to get into writing and especially um sports writing and so i was freelancing for a while as well and um i i had a lot of similar experience of watching like people i respected and people whose work i read and really liked get laid off from outlets and watching various outlets shut down and um the landscape of like writing jobs seemed to be collapsing right in front of my eyes. Um, and that can be really demoralizing watching, you know, this thing you wanted to do all this time sort of look like you're not going to find stability in it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, 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 f- I feel like I have all these skills and tools and this fire in me and the ability but like nowhere to put that energy, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know what that, what, if what that word would be, but it's kind of what it feels like a little bit. I don't know if that's what you're experiencing, but. Well, I, I don't know if I say demoralizing is the right word. Actually. I, I just, I felt kind of put out and really like by the end of my uh, like my senior year at RIT, I was almost like, why am I doing this? Because <laughs> I knew there was, there was an extremely high likelihood that I would be coming out of college in debt and without a job. Um, and I wasn't really sure, even though like, you know, Joe, like you said, uh, we got the tools, but I just, I mean, on the one hand, I, I like working for myself, but on the other hand, um, in some areas I, I kind of lack discipline and it's, so it's, it's just been kind of difficult for me to be self-employed full time. So I've been kind of compensating over the last few years by taking part-time work, but now I kind of, I, I realize I have a more fine-tuned idea of exactly how I want to use my skills and what career I want to build. So I've got a lot more direction now, but of course, you know, given the circumstances, it's, it's, it's a struggle to, to, you know, get off the ground again. (laughs) Yeah. You had mentioned um, like feeling like you're not good at uh, marketing yourself. And that was definitely an experience I had, you know, I, I was confident in my writing abilities, but I had no idea where to start as far as, turning that into employment and getting people to actually look at my work um, is how do you do that? I guess would be my question for, for both of you. Yeah. I actually really struggled with that too. I was kind of through all the conferences that I went to, all the people that came to my school and spoke, they like made it seem like social media was the way that you were going to get your work in front of them. 
and they would talk about how like, oh, I saw this guy's uh, work on Instagram where he was photographing Ferraris and I really liked his work. So I hired him to do this shoot for this car thing in my, in my newspaper and man, it came out really great. You know, so they just kind of like made me, made it seem like they were accessible. Yeah. Like just show, just make good work, tell good stories, get out there and it'll just, it'll just happen, you know? And I think it was just a dream. It was like almost a dream that was sold. And maybe, and I, and now I, I look at all these conferences and workshops and I see, uh, and I see, you know, these Nat Geo photographers, um, you know, doing this and that. And, and I kind of got a sneak peek behind a little bit of that in with one of my internships. And I think that like a, a lot of, a lot of money is actually in, in the idea of selling the dream of what it is to do photography and not so much the work. I think maybe it's like maybe a very small percentage of people, but if you notice, like if there's going to be a gallery showing, it's going to be you're going to see the same names over and over and over. And that's a little disheartening. You know, uh, I hope I, I really hope I'm not like quote unquote talking smack or anything, but like just kind of sharing some grievances a little bit, but um, uh, Mm -hmm. there's this, the Annenberg uh, space for photography here in LA, which is like really world renowned. And it's like a fantastic, to me, it's like a fantastic space and uh, what it was, it's not open anymore and it was free and you could go and they'd, they'd show photographers work from, you know, all over. And it's just like, I would go regularly and I would just see the same photographer over and over and over. And it was just a little like disheartening. Like there's so many people out there, even people I know, I'm not even advocating for my work, like just other people that I know that are out there doing amazing work. And for some reason they're not getting the attention and everyone's just stuck on the same few people. Yeah. I, 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 I feel that as well. Um, I also feel Joe, I, I don't know if you've experienced this and maybe, maybe Ryan, it might be similar with your experience as a writer, but in a way it's almost like creatives get typecasted, you know, like actors, how, yeah. uh, like Benicio del Toro, he always plays a monster, but he's, he's, he's a really good actor. He could, I'm sure he could do any role, you know, like, some actors they have the liberty like Brad Pitt of, of of going you know playing all kinds of roles but around here I actually I mean in a way the pandemic may have been a blessing in disguise in some you know in some form uh for me because I was getting really good at shooting sports but my uh experience was really limited I was only shooting high school sports and I and I, I was actually kind of getting bored of it um, cause it just wasn't a challenge for me anymore. And, and, uh, I was trying to get some other work to doing, you know, getting into professional sports. It's, it's difficult in Saratoga Springs cause there's no, like, I mean, we're not really a city. We don't have <laughs> professional sports teams and, you know, occasionally there might be an NCAA basketball tournament in, uh, Albany or, you know, something else happening in Albany, but there's really not a lot of opportunity. But regardless, I, you know, I try to get out there to shoot some more like, you know, college prospects basketball or, um, you know, NCAA sports. And it's just difficult because like there's some photographers around here. They're great photographers, but they get they get chosen for those kind of jobs that I was looking for. And meanwhile, the papers and and other guys are still asking me to, uh, you know, shoot high school sports. So. I, I don't know. Have you guys experienced that at all? You know, kind of being uh, typecasted in your fields? 
Um, I, I have uh, noticed. I have. I have noticed that um, in conversations with my professors and with photo editors, that they actually kind of want you to be typecasted. Like they, and I'm not sure why. I've kind of spent a little bit of time dwelling on this, and I think it's just maybe the industry is like has risk aversion, and like they don't want to just like trust an assignment to anyone. Maybe like maybe if I was to compare it to the movie industry, it's like if you're gonna make a mafia movie, you're gonna pick the guy that does all the mafia movies. But I'm not really sure because I, I I I'm with you, Jen. Like I worked um, in the univer- at a university, and it was cyclical. Like every year was the same. It was like seasons, you know. And I could see myself uh, quickly becoming bored of that. And, um, the challenge was like, you know, like obviously just try to spice it up and do something different. But, you know, the reason why I went to RIT was so that I could get away from living a, like a, uh, groundhog day life doing weddings every weekend. And, um, <laughs> and then that. it's like, you get into, you get into journalism and then they just want you to do groundhog day with journalism though. And <laughs> I, like, I, I, when I went to RIT, the things that piqued my interest and the things that I explored were kind of a blend of, of, of photojournalism and uh, commercial photography in the sense that I really, in my work, I like to bring in a lot of lighting and, and stuff. And I, I just like to blend those two worlds together. But I think that maybe it might be too risky for uh, like more traditional publications. I also was like encouraged to like, find a story that nobody's done or like find a community to document that hasn't been documented. And I've done those things. And in a way it kind of, I think it might've hurt my career maybe a little bit. I spent a little bit of time, like maybe five or six years photographing uh, the BDSM community in upstate New York. And when that work finally came out, I think that like it was profound and I, it was received well, but I think, I think also like the people within my community also kind of like caught their heads and like, were like, why is this guy photographing this and doing this? And I just thought it was interesting. I like photographing subcultures and um, I don't know, I, I, maybe there just isn't a market for it or there isn't a place for this work to go. Um, I just think it's important to make it while I'm alive and just maybe one day it'll go somewhere or someone will see it. That's kind of my mantra right now and my, my self motive motivation. Both of you clearly have this uh, passion for photography. Does it become hard to keep that up when it's also a job, also something that you need to do to make money? Uh, you want to go, Jen? <laughs> it's 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 a complicated question for me um, because part of my um, kind of transforming my career has been to seek out other opportunities in other mediums. Um, For example, I minored in creative writing at RIT. Mm -hmm. And I've used to just do writing just for fun. Or if, um, you know, like one of the papers I work for most frequently, they they had a few instances where a reporter got really sick and he had to go to the hospital. So I I covered for him. I, I did a couple of stories and, and, you know, I enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I could do news writing. I don't know why I never jumped into it until now. But writing and um, photography together I, is, is where I think that I can excel. And I am now inspired to work with both those mediums to produce products and, like I said, get them out to clients. So 
I mean, <laughs> I know this doesn't really answer your question, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I mean, photography is just is kind of the way that I see the world and I will always be a photographer. It's it's not difficult to do it as an everyday grind, but it is different than I imagined it like eight years ago when I was considering going to school for it. Yeah, I think how, what I was looking for was community, you know. I was really looking forward to going to a place where people knew me and I knew them and I was respected with my in, in my craft and I respected the people with their them and their craft. And as a team, we could uh, make really compelling stories and kind of change the world together. And really what it kind of feels like is like, I work in the service industry as almost a waiter and I serve photos. Um, <laughs> I saw, I saw something on the Facebook the other day uh, where, you know, where people were, where there was a, a post from a really big publication in New York city who was saying, come work for us and uh, use our brand and build up a following and we'll pay you according to your following. And it just, it just everything, every time I see a job posting, it just seems like, how are we not slipping into feudalism? with with all this like and i and i and my comment on the whole thing was is like the society's kind of turning like feudalism and i don't i don't grow potatoes i grow photos and i hope master can sell them at market for a fair price so i can eat this winter because it's like what it looks it's like feels like it's like i'm expected to bend over backwards for these people that i've never met and won't probably ever meet and i rarely ever talk to and like when i finally build a relationship with them they've moved on to another job and like i don't know where they are uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like that community that I was looking for. And I, I think the people that were teaching us and telling us about photography and photojournalism, they were, they were coming from that world. Like they experienced that, but I think that they don't know what it's like for us now, I guess, you know, we're like the Uber, we're expected to be Uber of photographers. Um, and, the, yes. and it's almost like the quality isn't, the quality is sacrificed over convenience. Like they would rather get a crappy photo of the thing faster than like maybe three minutes later. That's absolutely incredible and has everything. And then they have to pay for it, of course, you know, and um, there's not much respect um, in, in any of it. And it's like, almost like there's no dignity in it as well. Uh, you know, the pro most of the protest work that I cover here in LA is just on my own. I have reached out to, I have reached out to, um, you know, publications I've reached and I've had publications reach out to me, but as soon as I start talking about day rates or asking for compensation, they're just flabbergasted that I just won't work for exposure and I will withhold my work from them. And on some occasions they've actually went ahead and published my work without, uh, asking me or asking me and thinking that I would just agree and then publishing it anyways. And, you know, to have a big name publication, like take your work, like even quote you in an article and take your quote and make it the headline of the article. Basically you basically like without my permission. And I was there, that was a reporter on location for free and I have no recourse. Like I, like, what am I supposed to do? Hire a lawyer and come after them and go to court. And it's just like, I have, I have no weapons in my, in my armament to, defend myself against people just stealing what I do for free. Joe, I was just, I was just going to add to your, to your previous 
point, I completely agree with you. It just does feel like feudalism. And, and a lot of the times I, I am being taken advantage of. And, and it's nice to know that I, at least that I'm not the only one who's experienced that, but overall, I mean, it just, creative work is really just kind of taken advantage of. I feel like, you know, especially with photography, people who don't know about photography, just think like, oh, a picture with your iPhone is fine. Exactly. You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, like you get a writer who writes a good article and like for a, a low budget magazine or whatever. And it's a good article, but there's there's not good art with that. I mean, they got they got like crooked frame photos or like, you know, photos with distracting elements in them, stop signs or traffic or, you know, somebody with an awkward expression on their face, <laughs> you know, and it's just. It's just really frustrating because it's like, hello, we're ready to work. It's we can do this work for you. But... I call it clip art. You know, yeah, like they, exactly. they just need some clip art to go with the picture and they can get it online for free somewhere on Flickr Creative Commons or they can pay, you know, $85 licensing fee to a photographer for the image or whatever, but they're not going to, they're less likely to pay for it and just go with something that's easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, gosh, it's just, uh, I, 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 I tell people like, it's weird. It's weird because like we live in this like time where visual media is more prominent than ever before. Photos themselves are more, more needed than they ever have been yet. There's more devalued than they ever have been. Like yes, a, a photograph is not worth anything. It's like, it could be, it could be the most amazing picture, but the nature of the art is like complex in order for you to like see the picture. You have to consume the whole picture. Like I can't just show you half the picture and do a sneak peek. I can't like blur it and say, you know, pay, you know, 99 cents to see the rest of it. Like in order for you to see and understand and appreciate the image, you literally like consume the entire thing. Like I can't do like a 10 second Apple preview song before I spend the 99 cents. So it's really weird. Like I give people the photo and then I try to ask them to pay for it and they don't <laughs> ever. Ugh. I know. So ungrateful clients can't, you can't live with them. You can't live without them. That's what my dad always says. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to combat it. You know, I, I've, uh, I've, I've tried to educate people on the resolution of a screen versus the resolution of a print and then offer to sell them a print. Um, it's just, it's just, it's good enough. And as long as it's good enough, it's, it's good enough to have an article with a free picture on it. It's good enough to whatever it's going to, it's going to, it's no competition. It's, I don't know how to compete with that. You know? Yeah. And, and what's really unfortunate is that there are, there are no really laws for people like us to not be taken advantage of. There's no enforcing of copyright or there's no there's no restriction um saying like hey uh if you have a photographer and you pay them for a job then you only pay them for that job and the licensing of those photos in this article for x number of days there's nothing like that so like i'll i'll do a shoot for a newspaper They'll give me $40 for it, and then they get the photos. They get to use it with whatever the hell they want and reprint it as many times as they want. 
throughout the time it's in their archive and I get nothing. I get no commission for every time it's reprinted. I just yep. get that $40 and it's just, I mean, it's really just taking advantage. Granted, I mean, some newspapers pay more in, you know, larger areas, but still, I mean, it's, it's, and it's not just newspapers. It's, you know, Sports Illustrated is the same way. So there's no enforcement for these sorts of things. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what you're talking about is like, uh, my dad's an attorney and he hit like his job. He has like a guild, basically. Like you can't be an attorney unless you have, unless you went to school and you got a car and you took a test. And then you're in this, this like guild that's almost kind of like, like, a, like a weird religious clan like he goes to this building and everyone wears robes and it's secret language nobody understands what the hell they're talking about and it's and he, he explained it to me it's done on purpose like it's it's very intentionally done because it's like there's supposed to be this like veil of kind of uh, uh, about it and you know you look at other things like electrical electricians are in guilds masons were in guilds because like all these professions had to have had to become standardized and I just think it's interesting, like, photojournalists don't have that. It's almost like we don't have this, like, like membrane that you can only come into if you, like, have a proper education and you, you know, have a code of ethics as a photographer and on and on and on. And then the news industry is, like, required to only work with those people because they're of a certain grade. And then that guild can hold, you know, members accountable and all that. But I just feel like it's more like the Wild West. And that's why you see some of these photographers yep. out there you know, getting busted for photoshopping their images or um, doing all the things that they're doing because there isn't really a lot of like accountability almost, I guess. Well, they're able to undercut your work effectively. If there's like no requirement that they pay people a fair rate, they're going to take the cheapest option, these outlets, right? Absolutely. The cheapest and le and even if that means le lesser quality. Yeah, at one hundred percent of the time, that's what's going to happen, and and that's and the guilds serve a purpose to keep like, uh, you know, electricians that don't have that experience or knowledge from coming in and wiring buildings and then burning the buildings down. Like, there's a real function to it. Um, uh, Jen, you had mentioned you know this idea that there aren't really laws to protect freelancers in the way that um, that's, that's you would like, um, um, and, and I would say to that that even if there were like the onus of enforcing that law um in this country we have not a good record of like actually uh punishing people for violating labor law um it, it it's entirely likely that it would end up being like if you can't afford a lawyer to take on the publication who will be able to afford a lawyer you might not be able to get you know any sort of real justice for uh what they've done to you and I mean, you know, I, I've, I've no answer for that, obviously. And I'm only a 28 year old woman. I've, I haven't been on the planet for that long. Um, and sometimes you're confronted with really difficult situations. Like, what do you do? Like the person that stole my photos for their article and st stole my words and was paid, they got a paycheck for, they got a paycheck for their work, but they're, I'm not going to get paid for my work. But then if I complain to them, that person today works at the New York times. And their boss is a well-known editor at the New York Times. And they both stole my work and made money off of it and then built their careers on it. So, like, how do I, where do I get recourse for that? If I confront them, I risk, risk getting blackballed from my own community. You know, they really got you. Like, there's not much yeah, you can do, I, I feel like. 
I think it's yeah. uh, the only thing that can happen is that there needs to be some standard that um, is is practiced. I, I I mean I know like for example when it comes to copyright law. ASMP, the uh, American Society of Media Photographers, is uh, really fighting to get a copyright bill passed that will give more support to freelance photographers like us. Um, so, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think NPPA, they just announced that, like, uh, this bill that they were trying to get passed earlier that actually um, helped write my, my representatives about what's supposed to help us smaller people with copyright claims, um, how that will manifest. I'm not really sure. I'm really excited about it because it's really kind of put a stick in the mud for me as far as being a content producer. I, I still make content, but I very rarely put it out there. And I, if I put it on my website, I will put a password on it. And I don't know. It just, it just seems like, a yeah. And, and yeah, that gets into like the, the industry, like self cannibalizing, but I don't want, I don't know if we want to go yeah, there. That's, that, that may be a whole nother podcast episode that is, may or may not be relevant to uh, Ryan's content here. <laughs> you, you'd mentioned this idea of guilds that some, some industries have, but it, it seems to me like, you know, almost um, a collective response is what's going to be necessary to solve these problems. And one of the issues with freelancers is that you don't have exactly coworkers. Um, you have other freelancers, but you know, there's no one place for you to say, meet them or to collaborate with them to bring about change in a workplace if you wanted it. Yeah. I think we lack representation and I did join something called the freelancers union and they send out periodical emails and they actually offer health insurance to freelancers and they have some tools. And I think that's actually a really good direction. Um, organizations like that, I think might be one way we can try to lobby for better working, working situations, I guess. That's true. When you're not working for somebody at the very least, you, you could, uh, you know, join a union without getting frowned upon by your boss. Right. <laughs> yeah. Bosses, not big fans of unions. Uh, we've discussed this a lot on our show. Yeah. No, I have very personal experiences with that. Yeah, with my with my previous job at the university. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I am curious how have like the events of the last year affected the work the two of you have done, whether that be like COVID or the protests we've seen in cities across the country. Um. What, how has that changed your work? Is it, is it as simple as like now you wear a mask when you take photos? Yeah. So I, I've been wearing a mask. Um, it was very difficult shooting Black Lives Matter protests with a mask on because when mm -hmm. I cover a march, I run like quadruple the distance that the march does. I'm all over the place. I don't know how anyone else does it, but that's just how I operate. But in, in, in any case, uh, I mean, it took away a lot of my work prospects. My part-time job actually was working in a few hospitals in the area as a newborn photographer um, I for a company called oh, Bella cool. Baby. So I wasn't able to do that anymore. I got back into it for a couple of months, and then the spikes started happening again during the holidays, so we were kicked out of the hospitals again. Um but I also, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was a sports photographer. 
So high school sports were, I mean, there was a little bit around here in, in, in New York State. I mean, we had a, some soccer and field hockey. I don't know what it was like in Rochester or or California. Probably you know, similar. But, yeah, probably. In, in any case, it was it wasn't a lot. And, you know, so I just I just really didn't have the things around that normally generate my income on an annual basis. So, you know, I just, I had to adapt. I mean, for a while I was, I was working a, as a retail employee and now, like I said, I'm just, I'm focusing a lot more on personal projects and trying to monetize them. So what about you, Joe? What, how did the pandemic change your actions? Oh, well, with, um, I'll just use Black Lives Matter as kind of a reference, um, well, first off, okay, I will say I was going to launch in 2020. I was going to teach my first photography workshop at Yellowstone National Park for some like very elderly RV folk. And I was, I wasn't um, really charging them because I was going to run it as like a pilot program to try to work out the bugs to actually do it, you know, more and charge for it, for it. But I had to cancel it because of COVID, and I was really worried about getting all these, you know, older people gathered around together um, because of it. So I kind of had to put that on pause, and that was kind of a bummer um, on a on like a personal business side of things. Uh, on the documentary side of things, yeah, um, with the Black Lives Matter, I I started shooting Black Lives Matter protests in New York City in 2014 when it all kind of started, and if I tap into what I feel like it was then it was like, it felt like, like any other protest, (laughs) like the things that you cared about weren't the things that we care about now. And um, also I would say that the reaction to the, the the police's reaction to everything is also really different. Um, Now I feel way more concerned about my health, um, about my, about people, how close I am to people. Um, I really keep my distance as much as possible. If I'm going to go into like a tight group of people to make pictures, I'll sometimes like do my best to like hold my breath and get in there and make the picture and then get out as quick as I can and just try to keep my distance. Um, when I photographed Trump rallies, almost nobody was wearing masks and I did take huge risks there. And I wanted to photograph them actually earlier on in the, in the, um, pandemic because I knew they were also like really anti-mask and that they were going to be hit hardest. So I, after that, I focused more on the, um, Black Lives Matter crowd who were actually all wearing masks all the time. They had medics with hand sanitizer all the time. Everyone had hand sanitizer. Everyone had masks. Everyone was being responsible, keeping their distance apart from each other. Um, kind of really just night and day difference between the two protests really about the response to all of that and about the feeling that COVID brought into it. You know, I, I can't help but think that like the police too, um, just maybe something weird with the police, like in, in 2014, the police were just doing their job, you know, contain these protesters, make sure they don't do anything, but they're within their rights. Let's just walk with them and make sure that they're civil. And now it's like the police, like they're emotionally involved with what the, with what's going on. And, um, on election night at the Staples center, there was some protesters there and the police came out and, and after the protests uh, were over, uh, they marched in the streets and after the protests were over, everyone disbanded and went about their way. 
And the police came and actually like bottlenecked everyone and rallied everyone together. And uh, me and my partner, uh, who's who works as my assistant as well, uh, you know, dived in some bushes at a Seventh Day Church, uh, Seventh Day Adventist Church, and um, thought, well, we just we'll just wait this out, you know. And they came and rallied us up. And I told them I was pressed. I showed them my press pass. They did not care. They put me in handcuffs. Uh, They. and the thing that really stands out with me is that they weren't wearing any masks. And this is like election day. This is November, right? They weren't wearing mm-hmm. any masks and they knew they weren't wearing masks. Wow. And, and they were getting in our faces. They were, I had asked them, please, if you're going to stand this close to me, can you please wear a mask? And they're chewing gum with their mouth open and laughing and scoffing at us. They were making pro Trump remarks. Um, and they cited me with, with operating a vehicle dangerously in a fashion that might hurt a pedestrian. <laughs> even though I was in the bushes of a seventh day Adventist church. Um, <laughs> you even, were you even in a car? I was not in a car what? at all the entire time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, like, but like really what stood out is that they knew that there's, they know there's a pandemic. They also interact with the public regularly. They're not wearing masks on purpose. And they're in our faces. And I just can't help but they were intentionally like weaponizing COVID at that point. You know, like they were mm-hmm. intentionally trying to ex- get, expose us. And that was a really uneasy feeling, uh, you know, that the police in since 2014 have gone from like just doing their jobs to like being personally and emotionally involved. And then also like retaliating, even if it's verbally or even if it's biologically. You know, it still kind of was unnerving a little bit. Um, that stands out to me as far as like being worried about photographing uh, during these times. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to the inauguration um, because I was just terrified of like COVID, and I knew all this stuff was going to happen. But it's like, man, we're at the height of this pandemic, and um, I've got family that are uh, sensitive, you know, health to their with their health. And mm-hmm. I just had to kind of sit that one out and it breaks my heart as a documentary photographer saying like, I got to sit this one out. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't have a pub. I don't really have a publication that's sending me out there. I'm going to be taking on 100% of the costs. I'm also going to be taking on 100% of the risks. And then afterwards I've got to find someone that I can market this content to. And I just felt like it was just a little bit too much, uh, um, yeah, and and it does break my heart that I missed out on on some of that. Like those this is uh, some, something both of you have mentioned over the course of this discussion is the idea of like finding people to market your work to. Is it, does it get frustrating having to do work before you even know what you'll get paid for it? That's kind of with the generation that we're in right now. You know, uh, corporations expect us to take one hundred percent of the risk. And if we produce something that's valuable to them, then they'll offer us something for it. That's just kind of like what what I see around us with the tech industry, even like with the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Airbnbs. You know, you have to put all the risk up. If you want to be a successful Airbnb homeowner, you have to take out a loan. You have to buy a house in an area that you think it's going to be valuable. You have to do everything. You have to decord and all that stuff to just maybe one day make a profit. And then that profit is set on their terms and they could, they can tweak that profit up and down at any time and you're stuck in alone with the house. Yeah. I, I kind of, um, the same, I it's, it's just par for the course at this point, unfortunately. 
there's there's a lot of newness, especially now. I mean, we haven't seen a pandemic for a hundred years. Uh, I certainly a year ago, if you, you know, told me that we were going to be like wearing masks outside in public, I, I would probably laughed at you or something. And um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, but even before this, it's just it's just a lot of newness with the digital age. It's just everything is so much different than like what our professors, for example, were telling us what it was going to be like to work, you know, and, and just to have a, a job is like, oh my God, wait, I could still have a job as a photojournalist? Are you kidding me? You know, it's just, a, it's a very rare concept these days. So it's just kind of all about adapting and, and getting used to these, these things. And particularly with, with me having, they graduated three years ago. Um, it's just all about figuring it out. <laughs> and at times it feels like there's not really anything there to help out people who are just getting started. There's, um, I, I think, uh, Joe, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, that you had to, uh, that you took internships in college, right? Yeah. Oh, right out, right out. Well, yeah, in college and out of college. Yeah. Right out of college. Am I right that those were probably unpaid internships? It was a mix. I had, uh, I, my first one was, my first one was unpaid and then I had a paid one and then it was, and then unpaid after that. But yeah, I would say most, most of the, yeah, they're unpaid. That that was sort of my, uh, experience with, you know, print journalism is that it was almost an expectation that, if you were coming out of college, you already had a couple internships under your belt, which, you know, those weren't paid. So you had to have had the time between classes to, you know, get this internship that wasn't going to pay you. And, you know, that's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people who would otherwise be perfectly good at, perfectly capable at that sort of work. And if you don't have that on your resume, then you're sort of cut adrift and you're on your own in a lot of ways it's that taking on risk thing again you know i moved to new york city and got an apartment and took an inter- uh, unpaid internship for three months and accumulated debt so that i could find that job because of that internship and it actually worked out for me i was able to get a job at a university and a large and my boss said it's because of that internship but I also felt a little dirty because I had to like work for free for a guy that is obviously, um, you know, like taking advantage of free labor in an unethical way. And he didn't need to, like, he was a very well-known photographer, uh, and, you know, living in a fancy apartment in New York city. And he had a, he had like eight people in his studio and like six of them were unpaid interns and he was just, he was, it was just like a high turnover factory and I didn't learn anything. I didn't, I didn't learn anything working there. I hated it. I was treated with disrespect and, and little, very little dignity. And like, obviously I was, at, you know, two months in, I was like, why am I here? But it was the name, it was the prestige. And I feel like that. that you would, you that would think the goal. prestigious name would be able to pay their workers. <laughs> You would think that, but I was more young and 
uh, blinded by the prestige a little bit. And I would advise, I can't, and that's the thing that really sucks is like, I don't know if, if someone was coming out of school, I don't know if I could give them the advice to say not to do it. Like not to let this person take advantage of you because it might advance your career. And I've seen that in a low key way um, in the industry in different ways from like, you know, these kind of business ways and, you know, little more sleazy kind of ways, I guess. Yeah. Mostly I, I was, I was going to add that I never took an unpaid internship uh, just for the very reason that it is demoralizing and I did all this research about like how being an unpaid intern at, you know, anywhere was, was just really demoralizing for, for any, for anybody doing it. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm only going to do paid internship. And unfortunately I, I only had one internship and that was with one of the papers around here, the Glens Falls post star whom I still work for now, but I got, it was, it was good. They didn't pay me. I got paid. I, I got lucky because I got paid through, gosh, I forget. I think they're called like the New York state press association or something like that. So they have an internship every year that they give to a few students and you have to apply and they give a stipend for working at that paper for like six, eight weeks, I think. So I did that and it felt good and and it also felt good that the paper liked my work and that I was able to continue on as a freelancer during my times where I wasn't in school and now that I live in this similar area, uh, I continue to work for them. So I, I just feel like, you know, if there are any young listeners thinking about taking unpaid internships... Personally, I don't see the value in it. I think that you should get paid for your work and you should always be looking for experiences that give you both because it's going to be a more wholesome experience. I um, I was lucky, I guess, not to take on those sorts of unpaid internships but because, like you said, they left me feeling... Um, it wasn't something that I felt comfortable doing. Um, I guess it just seemed exploitative, I guess is the word. Um, But before we, I, I want to ask the two of you, and we talked a little bit about this earlier in our discussion of how, what would it mean to have better working conditions in, in your line of work? What would that look like to you? Like if you could just like wave a magic wand and make things better, how would things end up? I've, I've kind of talked about this a little bit. Just, I'm not, if I just had to guess, I would say it would be nice to have like um, a marketplace, a common marketplace or a system to like where we could find people that like our work better or, or like our, align themselves with our work, I guess. Um, I, I kind of think of like, like the, like the, like how Getty works it, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough question. I think like some, some like you, like, uh, like, um, the word is escaping me, but you know, when you standardization, some stand, some standardization in the industry, 
you know, like when a photo editor tells you that they randomly came across someone's Instagram profile and they really like the work, so they hired them. It's like, I can't live my life like that. That's, that's like, I, that's like living for chance. It's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to be a working photographer, documentary photographer, photojournalist. I'm not trying to be like the next YouTube star, you know, just putting my content up for free and hoping that like Usher picks me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel that. Sympathize there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say what that would look like. I I think, I, I mean, I agree with you, Joe. I think we, we've got to have some kind of, you know, maybe a freelancer's guild um, or um, have more popularization of the freelancing unions. I, For example, I, I never looked up something like that. I didn't know that it existed. Now that I know it existed, I, I might look into joining a freelancer's mm-hmm. union. But yeah, I mean, standardization and, you know, maybe, maybe there just needs to be some sort of societal shift where, um, you know, respect for creatives uh, work is, is more present because, you know, like we said before, a lot of times it's not, a lot of times we get work stolen or we get taken advantage of and we get paid really poorly for doing a lot of work or what have you. So, so yeah, I mean, it's difficult because we don't, we don't have a system in place. So some kind of system would be, would be great. <laughs> some teeth too. Like I would really like to have teeth like as an independent business. Like why can't I sue a large publication for, clearly violating my copyright and like not making it so litigious that I bankrupts me because I'm just an independent one person operation. Like if, if they clearly violated my copyright, there should be some kind of arbitration system that I can contact, um, some way to mediate it. You know, I'm not, it, I don't think it should necessarily go to the court unless it's something like really huge, but there should just definitely be some recourse for me as like an independent artist. You know, if someone takes my work and like repurposes it, like the, like what's going on with the Bernie Sanders photo that blew up um, with him in the mitten sitting in the chair, you know, that photographer, I don't think that photographer made any money off of that image. And it's like the most popular image right now. And the guy's not going to make any money. And I don't think he's even going to make any money from the Bernie campaign who just sold sweatshirts and memorabilia with the image on it. So, I mean, like, it's really like, we just need to have like some sort of way that we can protect our, our, the thing that we produce. Everyone gets to protect the thing they produce, but us in a way, because in order for other people to decide whether they want it or not, they have to see it in order for me to get them in front of their eyes. I have to wave all my copyright stuff for Twitter and for Instagram. And then once it's, once they can see it, then they've already consumed it. And, if, and then they can just take it for free if they want if they really do want to use it, they don't even have to ask me. So, I mean, we need some help yeah, right. from, from all around every legally, culturally, like even just people like culturally thinking that like a, an image is a photograph when it isn't, it's digital art, you know, like there's a difference between the, a, a, an image that's been manipulated and an image that hasn't been manipulated. And the value of an image that hasn't been manipulated isn't even recognized. I think like people don't, people see an image and they just assume it's manipulated. And sometimes when I tell people, no, that's like how I made it right there. They're just like floored and the value is goes up, but like for whatever reason, it doesn't turn into money. Or have you, have you ever had somebody say, God, I, I hate this. And I complain about this with a, 
with a colleague of mine in the area. But you, does your camera, your camera takes really good pictures. You have ever uh, had anybody say that? I hate that. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like, it's uh, not the camera. They, it's us guys. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They just think it's the, everyone just thinks it's the camera. I, I have friends and family that contact me and say, Hey, what's a really good camera for me to buy for my trip to such and such so I can take really good pictures. And it's like, it, it, it's like, it's like 99.9% of everyone out there is taking good pictures. Whereas like Jen and I have been trained to make good pictures. And there's a real difference in that. Like I see the photo before I take it and I make, I bring the elements where I want them before I make that image. And, and the things I do to that image, the light I use, the flash I use, the intensity, the color that I filter that I have on it, all these things orchestrate themselves and come together to produce this image that I guarantee you, you've never seen before. I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to make yet. It, it's not perceived that way by the viewer. You know, they think that if they just got a good enough camera, they could do that too. I, I think yeah, Jen well, made the oh, point sorry. earlier that, um, you know, creative work isn't really valued by a lot of people. There, there's almost a sense that if it's something you enjoy doing, it's almost cheating to get paid for it too, right? Uh, yeah. I think so, by the way, yeah, I'll go ahead, Jen, sorry. I was, I was just going to say, yes. I mean, sometimes, uh, like I've, I've actually sp- I felt guilt for charging people and it's just, it's, it's absurd. It's ludicrous mm-hmm. that I'm experiencing guilt but like for example just little things like um a school paying for for pictures that i took of their girls basketball team at a local tournament and you know trying to value the work where i know it's a public school they're paying me they're not gonna have a ton of money they're not gonna have a huge budget but saying like a hundred bucks for like five photos you know, and then just be, and just being like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm actually getting paid this. I, I gosh darn it, you should get paid that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't mind if like the layman out there wants to like retweet my image or you know might screenshot it and crop it and put it on their Instagram because it's a photo of them. Like that's not my market. You know, I want people to enjoy what I do. It, br- it brings me joy. But like, if you know better, like if you're a content aggregator, you know better. Why do you get to get paid and live in an apartment and buy groceries and raise a family and have children and pay off your student loans and get a car and help your mother when she's old and sick and elderly? You get to do that aggregating my content, but I don't get to do that for myself because you don't pay me. That's the, that's really a huge fundamental problem here is that like the only people making money here are content aggregators out there, not the content producers. And that needs to change. That's that's another thing is that is that we when we get we get trained like you said before all these elements that go into making a photograph not not only do we have that historical and compositional um, mastery and background but we also have a, a, are trained in ethics and mm-hmm. we we live by we work by a code of of ethics, ethical practice, you know, like for example, with a, with a story subject, you you don't want to interfere with the story or you don't want to put, you know, tweet out unflattering photographs of some, some person you took a picture of really drunk at a hockey game. It's just, 
and the, you know you have people like citizen journalists on on Twitter who think they know what they're doing and they may be well informed they may be even well educated they may be more educated than we are but they if they don't have that standard of ethics the ethical practice and the background and knowing what goes into making an image and why we made that image and what that image is for what it represents then what is i mean what are you doing out there you're just kind of putting out garbage and you're putting out an opinion that may be even unfounded you, you, you know mm-hmm. what i mean does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah um i i really hate to cut this conversation short because it's been so good and i thank you both for coming on the show but um we are running low on time um so before we go i, I do want to give the two of you an opportunity if if you want to to uh tell listeners where they can find your work if they want to look at it sure um well mine is uh I have a a website, uh, genmarch.com. That's J-E-N-N-M-A-R-C-H, like the month, not Marsh. (laughs) And uh, my Instagram, I have have actually three Instagram accounts. Um, The one that I'm using most frequently now is Slice of Life Photos. Um, And I... I, I do a lot of nature photography and I'm, I'm getting into um, climate and conservation journalism. So focusing a lot of my energy on that. So slice of life underscore photos. So that's kind of what am I moving into right now? Awesome. And so my, my slice of life photos account is, is a lot of nature photography. <laughs> Joe. Awesome. Yeah. I have a mix of nature too. You can't get away from it. <laughs> it's just natural. It's naturally beautiful. Yes. Um, my, uh, my Instagram is Joe Phillipson, J O E P H I L I P S O N Joe Phillipson with one L. And that's also my website. And, um, I'll, I'll post, uh, what I'm doing and that'll be either, uh, social justice, uh, stuff, environmental justice, or just some really nice, uh, travel photos and nature photos. Yeah. Thank you. Um, once again, this has been really great. I'm, I'm glad we could put this together. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan, and this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.